Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with the possibility that Putin is losing his mind and cannot deal with the disconnect between his grand ambition to restore Russian pride and lost territory with the reality that his kleptocratic mafia state has led to an army that is a paper tiger, hollowed out by corruption. Joining us is Robert Baer, one of the most accomplished agents in CIA history and the winner of the Career Intelligence Medal. He's the author of four New York Times bestsellers and is considered one of the world's foremost authorities on the Middle East and is an intelligence and national security affairs analyst for CNN. His forthcoming book out in May is The Fourth Man, The Hunt for a KGB Spy at the Top of the CIA and the Rise of Putin's Russia, and we will discuss the possibility Putin might use a tactical nuclear weapon on Odessa and that his mindset has deteriorated to the point he has a Samson complex and will pull the whole temple down, meaning unleash a nuclear war rather than admit defeat. Then we'll look into what is driving the rise of prices of commodities and especially oil and speak with Tyson Slocum, the research director for Public Citizens Energy Program, where he works to promote stronger regulation of energy markets, examines the impact of mergers and lax regulations over electricity, petroleum and natural gas, and monitors federal legislation on energy issues. He conducts extensive research on the influence of corporate special interests on our political system and works to promote corporate and government accountability. Then finally, we'll assess how bad the news is for Biden and the Democrats in the upcoming midterms with today's news that the U.S. economy has shrunk over the last quarter with the GDP falling to 1.4% between January and March compared with 6.9% GDP in the final quarter of 2021. Joining us is Dean Baker, senior economist and co-founder of the Center for Economic and Policy Research a progressive economic think tank in Washington, D.C. He's the author of The End of Loser Liberalism, Making Markets Progressive and Rigged, How Globalization and the Rules of the Modern Economy Were Structured to Make the Rich Richer. And he writes the popular economics blog, Beat the Press, where his latest articles are Two Routes to Lower Inflation and President Biden and the Price of Gas. And before we go to our first guest, this program is completely independent without corporate sponsors and advertising relying entirely on your support. So we ask you to take a moment and visit backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or go to our nonprofit media foundation at publictruthmedia.org where you can keep us online and on the air on a growing number of stations for as little as $5 a month. Help sustain us into the future so that we can continue to provide breaking news analysis from the most knowledgeable guests at home and abroad. And we've made it easier for you to donate simply by credit card at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate, where your tax-deductible contributions make this program possible. And joining us now, Robert Baer, one of the most accomplished agents in CIA history and the winner of the Career Intelligence Medal. He's the author of four New York Times bestsellers, including The Devil We Know, Dealing with the New Iranian Superpower. He's considered one of the world's foremost authorities on the Middle East and is an intelligence and national security affairs analyst for CNN. And his forthcoming book out in May is The Fourth Man, The Hunt for a KGB Spy at the Top of the CIA and the Rise of Putin's Russia. Welcome to Background Briefing, Robert Baer. Thanks, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us. And 
Your new book, of course, breaks extraordinary ground and tells a whole untold story. And I guess we should save it until the book comes out. And when I hopefully when we can do another interview. But just in sort of broad strokes, it tells the story of the enormous advantages Russian intelligence had over the United States, being able to read our mail at the highest level of our government for many decades, including through the Clinton era. So what's the disconnect then, Bob, between the skillful use of intelligence on the part of the Russians and Putin by extension and this debacle in uh, Ukraine? Well, I think the explanation is simple, is that Putin takes over internal Russian intelligence, the FSB, nineteen ninety eight and it's a fairly effective organization, even in the Yeltsin years. It collected compromise on Russians, it ran sources abroad, and Putin fell in love with the FSB. He came out of the predecessor, which was the second chief directorate, and expanded it. But the problem is is he became more autocratic and corrupt. So you had an organization which was founded on enormous power, increasing power, but also corruption, because there isn't a single officer in the FSB not on the take, determined to keep their jobs, and then lied to Putin. They said, look, you go into, into Ukraine, the government will collapse, um, the pro-Russian factions in Ukraine We'll throw flowers at the tanks at Kherson. They, in particular, he was surprised about. And, you know, it's going to be a walk in the park. So a fear of Putin and money corrupted the FSB, which is responsible for spying on the Ukraine, as it corrupted, money corrupted the army. It's, it was, it, Russia is a kleptocracy. And the criminal gangs are not devoted to the truth. So that's what's happened. So specifically, the army is hollowed out, right? I mean, you got Prigozhin, Putin's cook, who's head of procurement. He's supposed to feed the troops, and he's pocketing half the money. Is that the M.O.? And that's... He pocketed more than half the money. This is what came as a surprise to American intelligence. It was 90% pocketed. It, you know, I hate to use the term, but it was a Potemkin village. They were, uh, they underpaid the, the conscripts, the equipment. You know, some prototypes were very advanced. The Russians are very good at that. But in general, um, their tanks were based on the T-72. And, and our anti-tank weapons just surpassed it. And so they're completely vulnerable and, you know, none of this was explained to Putin. You know, he would go to May Day parades or whatever he's doing or go to military demonstrations and look at all this new stuff we have. And all along, a system he put in place, everybody's driven by greed and stealing as much as they can. And he never put two plus two together that an army, that's a criminal enterprise going into a, a real battle is going to lose. He didn't understand that. And apparently all of the high-tech weapons they have, the cruise missiles and others, 
they have done forensics on them in Ukraine, and they're all operated on computer chips that come either from the United States or Europe. Well, yeah, I mean, they have been stealing our technology for years. I mean, I mean, this is known. I mean, and but the problem is they couldn't adapt it to their military because military was more interested in, in making money than taking this technology and putting it in the field of battle. Um, they, they just couldn't they couldn't handle all the secrets they were stealing in, in an effective way. And, and this is what they come up with. When you have a kleptocracy, kleptocracies cannot fight wars. And again, I'm speaking with Robert Baer, one of the most accomplished agents in CIA history and the winner of the Career Intelligence Medal. He's the author of four New York Times bestsellers, including The Devil We Know, dealing with the new Iranian superpower. He's considered one of the world's foremost authorities on the Middle East and is an intelligence and, and national security analyst for CNN. And his forthcoming book out in May is The Fourth Man, The Hunt for a KGB Spy at the Top of the CIA and the Rise of Putin's Russia. So Putin, of course, you mentioned he took over the FSB in 1998. In September of 1999, he blew up a bunch of apartment buildings, killing over 300 Russian citizens in a false flag operation, which he blamed on the Chechens, and that became the excuse for an him prosecuting the second Chechen war, which is was prosecuted rather like he's prosecuting the war now in Ukraine by just flattening cities. Grozny was just turned into rubble. So uh, is there a likelihood of another? I and mean, we know this false flag operation is going on now in, in the Russian enclave in Moldova, Transnistria, on the border, the western border of Ukraine. Is it possible that he could do a bigger false flag operation? Because my understanding is that Putin's getting a lot of heat from his right-wing nationalists who want him to declare this a war and mobilize fully for this war. Uh, but he's sort of trapped in his own rhetoric by having described this Ukraine war as a special military operation. So could he use a false flag to change the narrative to give himself an excuse before the Russian people that they need to mobilize fully because he's losing this war. He needs to up the ante in a lot of ways. His air force isn't working. His armor isn't working. He's not making progress in the Donbass as he expected to after he regrouped and any number of possibilities. We don't really understand what happens in his inner circle. Uh, it, it's not knowable. Um, so he could do any number of things. He could do a couple false flags, blowing up a school bus, for instance, which you know, he killed more than 300 people in 1999, and show the pictures and say, look, the Ukrainian fascists did this. Uh, we're going to war. We're going to mobilize. Uh, but it's the same. I mean, he also could use tactical nuclear weapons. Um, Maybe to take Odessa, that's one expectation of the Ukrainian. He just simply drops one on Odessa and says, hey, now we're, now we're going in. It's the only way we can beat fascism. Of course, the Ukrainians aren't fascists, but he's been building up that lie since 2014 they were fascists. And that's, he's been working on that for years to justify what he's doing right now. Um, you know, we should expect anything out of him because he's cornered like a rat and he's vicious and he's violent 
and he will strike out before he goes down. And it's almost he would rather start a nuclear Armageddon than admit that he was weak and wrong. So in terms of a tactical nuke in Odessa, it doesn't sound logical that he would destroy the city. It's a Russian-speaking city after all. But it's heavily defended. And would he be able to sort of drop one on the defenses as opposed to destroy the city? I think he would destroy the city. I mean, Mariupol, he just he's wiped it from the map. He just he's just not going to distinguish between ethnic Russians and ethnic Ukrainians. And there's, you know, Ian, we're, we're, we're in a civil war like we've never seen before. This this makes Spain look like a, a tea at the Dorchester. And this is the problem when you have built up in your mind that the Ukrainians are subhuman and an existential threat to Russia, any amount of force in his mind is justified. So where is this information about nuking Odessa coming from? Is it coming from the Ukrainians? It's coming from the Ukrainians. So it, it, it's, it's inherently unreliable. Um, I, I mean, you know, this is war. Um, all first reports are, are probably lies and propaganda. But Ukrainians are talking about stopping at nothing to get to Moscow. I'm not talking about just liberating the Donbass and Crimea. They said you just have to destroy Russia in order that this never happens again. Destroy it. It, 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 doesn't, it doesn't matter that they probably can't do it. It's the kind of thinking we would rather die then submit ourselves to Russian aggression ever again. And they go back into history. They go back to the Red Famine, early 30s. They go back to 1917. Uh, they, you know, this, this is, there's bad blood going back for a long, long time. And it, it's sort of for both sides, it's a fight to the finish. Well, it's a bit of a fantasy on the part of the Ukrainians to, to think they could take Moscow, but Putin did try to take Kyiv. And he failed, but he is destroying this country. Its economy is finished. Putin's economy is in trouble, but he's managing now to but get that, foreign currency. I mean, how how bizarre is that, that Putin gets over a billion dollars a day from the Germans for gas, uh, and he's making them pay for it in uh, euros, which are then translated into rubles to prop up the u- ruble. So this is uh, extraordinary, isn't it, to be financing you're aggressor. Well, and it's 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 not just that is that he's got a stranglehold on the world's economy. He can not only keep, you know, the third world, the developing world, starving of grain and and sunflower seeds. You know, and you add that to a possibility of a failed crop in India. And the game is changing overnight where, you know, it's not just the Germans supporting his aggression on Ukraine and his plans to go beyond Ukraine to Moldova and Transnistria and and who knows where next. Yeah, but, you, the, but, the, he's, the, the but his army's, a, his army's a, a paper tiger. You were saying that earlier. So how the hell is he going to go beyond where he is now? He, he just simply has to produce artillery shells. And and just run him through those artillery pieces until Ukraine is no longer exists. And that's where he's, as of today, that's where he's going. And what is, 
can Biden do? I mean, Biden announced today a $33 billion package. I mean, they've been very slow in getting stuff to the Ukrainian military, but what's the $33 billion going to be do if this is the ultimate plan? Is there any way to stop Putin? It, it, no, it's $33 billion is a down payment on World War III. Meaning what? Meaning, uh, you know, it's attack on a NATO country, the Baltics. You know, go in, take them. He's he he has got to continue this war on the West and war on NATO. He simply cannot. He he cannot let it go with this, a, a piece of the Donbass. With so much he's lost, he's got to keep going. It, it it's a it's a macho thing almost. He can't turn to the Russians and say, "Hey, I made a mistake." You know, we got a bigger piece of the Donbass, so let's let's declare victory and leave. I th- people have watched him for years. It's, uh, that's not what he's going to do. And right, he's lost but... his mind. So we don't really know what he's going to do because he's been listening to these mystics and, and you know, the Russian superiority and the Russian soul. And, and it, it's the clash of civilizations. He believes this. Right. He's, I and know, so he's, we don't know what he's. He apparently yeah, we compl- don't know what he's going to do. Right. But let's just go back to the idea that he fires a nuke at Odessa. That's a huge game changer. I mean, then what, what's the West going to do at that point? I have no idea. And I don't think anybody in Washington did. You know, I don't think anybody in Washington does. I mean, they don't know what's going on. We never took him seriously. When he went into to Crimea in 2014, and this blabbering on about, you know, he's going to war against NATO and he's going to turn back the West and he's going to take on the West. No one believed it. No one paid any attention. And and now all of a sudden you, you have to figure out where the, what this guy's going to do next. And, you know, I, you can't tell some pictures uh, of him, but then I'm beginning to wonder where he's completely lost his, his mind. And then that means we can't predict what he's going to do. We can't predict. If the Russian command and control will follow orders to launch nukes, that's unknowable. We don't know. But assuming he does fire a tactical nuclear weapon as a way to break the will of the Ukrainians and destroy Odessa, then clearly, as much as there are sanctions against him now, he would become an international pariah, wouldn't he? I mean, nobody would want to deal with him. Not even, the, even the Chinese would have a problem, wouldn't they? Ian, right now, it's the Samson option for him. If he has to die and take down the temple, it's, it's crossed his mind. Right, but is there any way that, we, you can, that you can let him have some kind of victory, that he can dress up as a victory and then... And, and there's there's nobody to give him that victory because if Zelensky turns to the Russian, I mean, turns to the the Ukrainian military, and says, "Hey, we're going to give up the Donbass to stop this," Zelensky will be gone the same day. So they're both both sides are fighting to the death. Yeah, I talk every day to Pravi Sektor. You know, the guys they're they're sort of the backbone of the Ukrainian military, and there's they're determined they're they're going to for broke mm-hmm. well they have every reason they're being invaded right yeah and they're being murdered it's genocide what do you do when you're up against genocide you you fight back and surrender uh will 
that does nothing for you because he'll keep going. That's what well, they believe. It, it, in all these things, it doesn't really matter what the, the plans are. It's what people believe. Well, you've given us a lot to think about, uh, Bob Bear, and I thank you for joining us here today. Yeah, none of us optimistic. Sorry about that. <laughs> That's an understatement. And again, I've been speaking with Robert Bear, one of the most accomplished agents in CIA history and the winner of the Career Intelligence Medal. He's the author of four New York Times bestsellers, including The Devil We Know, Dealing with the New Iranian Superpower. And he's considered one of the world's foremost authorities on the Middle East and is an intelligence and national security affairs analyst for CNN. And his forthcoming book out in May is The Fourth Man, The Hunt for a KGB Spy at the Top of the CIA and the Rise of Putin's Russia. We're going to take a brief station break back looking into what is driving the rise of prices for commodities, especially oil. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Tyson Slocum, who is the Research Director for Public Interest Energy Programs, where he works to promote stronger regulation of energy markets, examine the impact of mergers and tax regulations over electricity, petroleum and natural gas, and monitor federal legislations on energy issues. He conducts extensive research on the influence of corporate special interests on our political system and works to promote corporate and government accountability. Welcome to Background Briefing, Tyson Slocum. Always a pleasure to join you, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us, Tyson. And today the Democrats have announced plans to go after big oil to bring down prices. Nancy Pelosi says oil companies are hoarding windfall profits while keeping prices high at the pump and, of course, driving inflation, which is a political hot potato uh, affecting both President Biden's popularity and the Democrats' chances in November. So... What are the chances of uh, these oil companies? I believe on Friday, Exxon is about to post record earnings, and Chevron recently reported the best two quarters the company's ever seen. Right. So we're going to continue to see record profits uh, by the oil companies because when prices go high, as they have been for crude oil, the market price of crude oil is way higher than the oil company's cost to get that oil out of the ground, send it into the market and refine it into products like gasoline. Uh, so that that's the important thing to, to understand is that when global events and speculation around uh, uncertainties about the war in Europe, climate related disasters that result in market disruptions, Anytime these events happen, financial traders send the price of oil up and the price of oil is not correlated with the costs associated with producing it, transporting it and refining it. And so when you've got that divergence between a very high you know, market price and uh, uh, a divergence away from the actual costs involved, 
if you're an oil company that's in the business of of pulling oil out of the ground and selling it into the market, when those market prices far exceed your costs, you're going to post record profits. And that's exactly what we're seeing right now. But a lot of it's driven, is it not, by traders? I mean, the Commodities and Futures Trading Commission, which is supposed to oversee oil trading, under Trump they were crippled and became impotent. Biden has not appointed enough commissioners, has he, to... Well, we, the... we just we just got a Senate confirmation of a full slate of um, commissioners at the Commodity Futures Trading Commission, which is an independent regulator. So they just got in their seats. Uh, the Biden administration took a little too long, uh, and then the Senate dragged their feet a little bit. But they've got it now. Uh, so you're absolutely right that, you know, markets the market price for crude oil is not unilaterally set by exxon mobil or even by the saudi government it's set by financial traders in markets uh like the new york mercantile exchange or the london uh exchange or the intercontinental exchange and what you're having is in these financial markets where the prices of crude oil are being set speculators are driving most of the trading volume. And in addition, a vast majority, more than 80% of all the trading volume is uh, determined by algorithmic traders or, or automatic traders. So these are traders that employ a variety of different algorithmic programs that are where the computer programs rather than human traders are responding to global events. And that's increasing the rate of volatility because the algo traders, these algorithms are programmed to immediately respond to say Twitter activity by key uh, participants and government officials, press releases, information on, you know, if there's an explosion somewhere near an oil refinery or a new uh, uh, military offensive. Um, and so as a result, you've got this reflexive, non-analytic, algorithmic trading that is driving volume rather than a, you know, a solid, analysis of supply demand fundamentals. And so, you know, I don't think that oil should be inexpensive right now. There are legitimately things going on in the world that are contributing to some uh, supply challenges. But that said, the, the, the level of price increase and the amount of volatility, the amount of constant price swings that's not being driven by supply demand fundamentals. That's being driven by the financial speculators that are uh, uh, dominating our uh, energy trading markets. And again, I'm speaking with Tyson Slocum, who's a research director for Public Citizens Energy Program, where he works to promote stronger regulation of energy markets, examines the impact of mergers and lax regulations over electricity, petroleum and natural gas, and monitors federal legislation on energy issues. He conducts extensive research on the influence of corporate special interests on our political systems and works to promote corporate and government accountability. And... Um, 
at the moment, the algorithms and the speculators are driving the price of oil based upon a concern that the Omicron breakouts now in China, this lockdown Shanghai and now perhaps Beijing, is going to result in less demand from China, etc. So that's an example of how this system works. But my understanding is that there's approximately 13 times the physical amount of oil is traded. In other words, in, there's plenty of oil out there, but they're trading 13 times that amount. Oh, absolutely. There's more than 95% of all of the financial trades in crude oil do not result in the actual physical delivery or procurement of crude oil. These are all just financial trades where entities are speculating or betting on the direction of oil prices. Um, and uh, the problem with that is, is that it inhibits the ability of actual end users, say an oil refinery or an airline or FedEx or other entities that need access to, you know, to, to energy prices that are stable, we're seeing the these end users essentially being sort of locked out of the market because almost all of the trading volume is dominated by the speculators. And so, you know, this so-called excessive speculation was targeted by Congress back in 2010. It was a centerpiece of the Dodd-Frank financial reform law. This was the, the marquee legislation to address the uh, the collapse of the financial system in 2008. And in the Dodd-Frank law that passed Congress, there's a whole section uh, uh, in, in the derivatives title where Congress says there is excessive speculation in our energy commodity markets and we need federal regulators at the Commodity Futures Trading Commission to crack down on that excessive speculation. And the primary tool that they uh, proposed was establishing something called position limits. What a position limit does is it limits the size of a position or stake in a given commodity market that any one trader can hold. So it's sort of like an antitrust measure. It prohibits the ability of one trader, whether it be Exxon or Goldman Sachs, from controlling too much of the trading in this given market. The problem is, is that due to industry pressure from both the oil industry and the uh, uh, from Wall Street, the CFTC took more than a decade to finalize a rule and the, the, the rule that they did finalize in the last month of the Trump administration was extremely weak. So essentially we don't have effective position limits on the books even more than a decade after Congress uh, directed regulators to do so. So the lack of effective position limits is a problem. But Tyson, my understanding is that the purpose of the Commodity Future Trading Commission was exactly to stabilize the market so that end users like airline companies that have to buy lots of jet fuel would be able to have, you know, a stable price and a reliable delivery. So why has the opposite happened? Well, I the the the, the reason is because the political and economic influence 
of financial traders and the oil industry is stronger than the political and economic influence of end users like the airlines and and other industries like that. And so this is just a power play where the financial traders make an enormous amount of money. They need volatility to make money. If you're a trader, you're not going to make any money if the price of oil remains fairly stable. The only way a trader can make money is on the price change, right? Because every time there is a there's a price movement, that's a profit opportunity for a trader. So traders, as a result, seek to encourage price volatility. But end users don't want volatility, right? Because volatility is a killer if, for your business because you can't plan accordingly uh, because you can't accurately predict where the price of a key input like fuel cost is gonna is gonna go. So you've got this constant conflict in between the end users that want access to a stable and transparently priced product and the financial speculators that need to see increased levels of volatility and increased uh, prices in order to to earn more profits. So just to translate this to, the consumer as you go to buy gasoline and you notice that the gas station they post the prices and they're up and down all the time say oil price drop drops dramatically in one day when you go to the gas station it's still got the high price from yesterday posted and so how does it operate if they have a whole bunch of stuff in the underground tanks that's worth x amount of dollars when they bought it, but now it may, they can charge a lot more or can charge a lot less, but they always seem to charge a lot more. Right. So this is the so-called rocket and feathers effect where oil prices rocket up and gas prices always seem to rocket up with them. But when oil prices go down, gasoline prices instead drop like a feather. They move much slower uh, downward. And, and I think there's a number of different uh, possible explanations to this. And some of it is that there is a lag between the, the sort of wholesale uh, suppliers or, or the, the rack, as it's known in the industry, and the retail gasoline station owners. Very rarely are there instances where the retail gasoline station owners are engaging in price gouging. They're operating typically on very tight margins. It's actually a fairly competitive business. They, they, quite frankly, a gas station makes more money selling Twinkies in their convenience store than they do selling gas. Gas is basically the way that they get you into the convenience store, right? So, um, you know, so the, the problem isn't at the retail level. It's in the wholesale level where the bigger wholesale suppliers the large refiners, the vertically integrated oil companies like uh, the Chevrons and the Exxons, this is where the profit maximizing opportunities are. And that's why, you know, we're going to continue to see record profit earnings by all the major oil companies because they've got the inventory. And when the market prices go way beyond their cost to produce or, or refine oil, they're going to pocket that difference. And that's exactly what we're seeing. So the, the profiteering here is not by 
you know, the retail gasoline uh, station owner. It, it's really by the larger uh, wholesale suppliers like the big oil companies. So just in the last couple of minutes, then, Tyson, recently Democratic Senators Maria Cantwell and Amy Klobuchar led a Commerce Committee hearing on the manipulation of petroleum markets. And Rokhana, also in the in the House, is also uh, working on legislation. What are they proposing and what can be done to stop this price gouging and profiteering? Yeah, so w- one thing that, that Senator Cantwell, a uh, 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 senator from, from Washington State, has been a leader on for a long time, is increasing... Uh, accountability and transparency in energy markets. And one of the things that her office has been uh, touting is we need more detailed data reporting on who exactly owns and controls energy infrastructure and uh, 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 more detail on the transactions of uh, who is moving oil uh, in which markets and selling at which prices. We need radical price transparency because right now, Ian, we're all left guessing, right? We know that the oil companies are making money because they're they're posting record profits. We know that the some of the financial traders are making big money. But what the public and lawmakers and journalists like you don't have access to is detailed information on who owns this storage terminal, who uh, uh, controls it, who is selling oil into the U.S. market, into that pipeline, into that uh, uh, wholesale storage facility at what prices? We need all of that detail so that we can uh, clearly track who is winning and who is losing in, in oil and petroleum markets. Absent that information, it's to- almost totally opaque. The public has no access to to this and and the only people that benefit from that lack of transparency are those that are profiting off of it well tyson slocum i thank you very much for joining us here today ian it's always my pleasure and again i've been speaking with tyson slocum who is the research director for public citizens energy program where he works to promote stronger regulation of energy markets examines the impact of mergers and and lax regulations over electricity petroleum and natural gas and monitors federal legislation on energy issues and he conducts extensive research on the influence of corporate special interests on our political system and works to promote corporate and government accountability we take a brief station break. We're back assessing how bad the news is for Biden and the Democrats in the upcoming midterms with today's announcement that the U.S. economy has shrunk over the last quarter with the GDP falling to 1.4% between January and March compared to the 6.9% GDP in the final quarter of 2021. I've been waiting for years to buy a brand new Cadillac But now that I've
Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now are Dean Baker, Senior Economist and Co-Founder of the Center for Economic and Policy Research, a progressive economic think tank based in Washington, D.C. He's the author of The End of Loser Liberalism, Making Markets Progressive, and Rigged, How Globalization and the Rules of the Modern Economy Were Structured to Make the Rich Richer. And he writes the popular economics blog, Beat the Press, where his latest articles are Two Routes to Lower Inflation and President Biden and the Price of Gas. Welcome to Background Briefing, Dean Baker. Thanks for having me on, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us, Dean. And uh, the news today is considered pretty bad for Biden and the Democrats and their possibilities of not being routed in the midterms in November. The Gross domestic products uh, fell to 1.4% between January and March, uh, which is, of course, a pretty sad reversal from the 6.9% GDP growth that the U.S. recorded for the final quarter of 2021. Biden's also, at his popularity in the polls, he's down to 41%. So do you accept the conventional wisdom, Dean, that this is a death blow to the Democrats and to uh, Biden? Hardly. I mean... The media's coverage of this, and really the economy in general, has just been kind of astounding. The other item that came out today didn't get anywhere near as much attention. Weekly unemployment claims, 180,000. That's incredibly low. Um, These are levels we haven't seen since the early 70s, and our workforce is twice as large. People, it's never been easier for people to get a job, and somehow this doesn't get mentioned. I think for most people, that's really big news. But let me tackle the the GDP numbers head on, because it's it's a very, very deceptive number. GDP did shrink in the quarter. I mean, that part's true, but it was a very unusual report. We had this huge increase in the trade deficit that subtracted four percentage points from GDP growth. We also had a fall off in inventory, in inventory accumulation. We'll go into detail on that. But if you pull out those two items, we had very strong investment growth, grew at a 9.2% rate, very strong consumption growth, 2.7% annual rate. So you just look at GDP without looking at imports, without looking at uh, the inventory issue. GDP grew at a 3.7% rate. Now, I'm not playing games when I do this because inventory, uh, I'll focus on the trade. Um, We know there have been big issues with trade during the pandemic because we've had the supply chain issue. You've had all these boats sitting offshore that can't unload. Well, we're starting to resolve the supply chain issue. Those boats are unloading. Those are imports. So that was going on here. We had this big increase in imports associated with boats unloading. And, you know, that's that's not a bad story. So if we look at the underlying rate of growth, that's this 3.7% figure very healthy. And that really is what we should be looking at going forward. We're looking at a healthy, strong growing economy. Well, would the economy be even healthier if Biden's Build Back Better had gone through? Is How much of a factor is, of, is that, that in effect, Biden's agenda was sabotaged within by Senators Manchin and Cinema, who, you know, for all intents and purposes, are traitors to the Democrats? Yeah, I mean, it's a huge problem. They, they block the bill. We'll see if they're able to get anything through in the, this session of Congress. But uh, among other things, uh, perhaps the most straightforward and simple thing was the uh, bill would have extended the expansion of the child tax credit, which made a huge difference for a lot of low and moderate income people, particularly 
um, you know, people uh, with the lower end of the, the uh, income level who don't qualify for the tax credit without the expansion. So for these people, it made a huge difference by a number of estimates It reduced the child poverty rate by 50 percent. That's a huge deal. And it's just a shame that they weren't able to get that to continue. Now, the other items in there, you know, kept changing, of course, but child care, you know, that would be great. We know child care is a real problem for millions of parents. Um, also, obviously, it's a big thing for the kids. Um, you know, other items in there, climate, uh, hopefully we'll get something on that. I mean, it isn't a secret. We have to do something there. So there are a lot of items in that bill which would have provided long-term benefit the climate. Of course, that's a longer-term story, but the child tax credit, child care, um, lowering prescription drug prices, again, maybe we'll see that. Those are no, more near-term stories that would have provided a very immediate benefit to the economy that, unfortunately, at least for now, we're not seeing. So why is it that that kind of spending meets with such resistance from people like Manchin and Cinema, who've never really been able to explain their positions? And Cinema is not even available to the press. She can't even talk to her. So she won't tell you why, that, why she votes the way she does. So what is this weird disconnect? Why is it that the Republicans and these couple of Democrats who, for, as I've suggested, are for all intents traitors to the Democrats, why yeah. is it what they're doing considered responsible when the opposite is true? You lift up more people out of poverty, you make life better for more Americans, and the economy gets better. I just don't get it. Yeah, it really has been incredible. I, I see a real distinction between Manchin and Cinema. Not that I'm going to go on my way to defend Manchin, but the simple point is that there'd be no other Democrat who could get elected in, in West Virginia. So to a certain extent, as, as unhappy as many of us are with Manchin's voting, the fact that you have someone who will vote for President Biden's pick for this, picks for the courts, vote for his cabinet officials, um, voted for the first the, the Recovery Act. Um, that was very, that's almost a fluke. So as much as I could be upset that Manchin's not supporting Build Back Better, um, he at least supported a number of measures. And again, no one else from West Virginia would do that. Uh, cinema's harder story. <laughs> Arizona voted for, for President Biden. Uh, the other senator's a Democrat. Um, cinema, you know, I, I don't know the woman's psychology at all. All I could say is she's gotten a ton of mostly positive press. The Washington posted a glowing piece on her, how she's a maverick. Uh, you know, it's kind of like you go out and you say nonsense things and the Washington Post goes, that's great. I mean, you know, I'm picking on the Washington Post here because I happen to read it closely, but I'm sure, you know, other, other news organs as well. But we should also point out, you know, the Republicans are unanimously opposed to that. And that, that is striking. You know, it wasn't ancient history. I'm old enough. You're probably old enough to remember, too, that it used to be the case that Republicans would look at bills and they wouldn't necessarily sign on to everything Democrats would put on the table, but they wouldn't rule it out either. And here you have 50 Republicans that have basically said, no, we're not on board. And, you know, could they negotiate? Could they say, oh, we don't like this. We like that. Uh, maybe, but there's no real evidence of that. And that that's really an important point that I think gets missed. So we could be upset that we have two Democrats that won't support the Build Back Better bill. But it also should be noted that we have 50 Republicans that are just unanimous in opposition and not, not willing to negotiate. And, and that's that's really, you know, unfortunate that's blocking it. I mean, that we could put it that way. 
And again, I'm speaking with Dean Baker, who's a senior economist and co-founder of the Center for Economic and Policy Research, a progressive economic think tank based in Washington, D.C. And he also writes the popular economics blog, Beat the Press, where his latest articles are Two Routes to Lower Inflation and President Biden and the Price of Gas. So let's deal with inflation then, which, of course, is dogging the president, particularly the price of gas. There, as you write, there are two stories, inflation stories. There's a good inflation story and there's a bad inflation story. And frankly, it looks like the bad inflation story is going to come to pass with the Fed raising the interest rates and possibly bringing on a recession to combat inflation. Um, We saw that before with uh, Volcker, did we not? And it was disastrous for most Americans. Yeah. Um, so, so the issue here, we've had this big run up in inflation. No one could be happy about it. But the points I make in that piece, and I made elsewhere, and others have too, that the inflation is a worldwide phenomenon. So, if you look at inflation in the United Kingdom, you look at inflation in the European Union, it's a little less, maybe a percentage point less than in the United States. It's not. No one would be happy if we had European Union's inflation. And as much as many, and certainly the Republicans, but many in the media want to blame Biden's recovery act, saying, oh, they spent too much money. Well, that didn't cause inflation in Europe. So the point I make there is that the inflation's been caused by supply chain problems associated with the reopening from the pandemic. That's hit everyone. Obviously, pandemic's still ongoing, and particularly in China, you have shutdowns. And of course, the war in Ukraine, which has created all sorts of uncertainty, led the price of oil to get over 100 a barrel. So these are, are, are difficult issues to deal with. There's not a magic wand. And what, again, when I, I say there, there's reason to think we're overcoming the supply chain problems. Obviously, what happens with the war slows that down. China's shutting down major cities, Shanghai first, and maybe now Beijing. Um, that creates problems for that as well. But we do seem to be catching up in a lot of areas. I pointed out to take one product, television prices had soared last spring and summer. They're now below their March 2021 level. Used car prices are now dropping rapidly. So there's some evidence we're overcoming that. And I'm hoping that that will continue and the inflation numbers will get down to more acceptable levels. Won't happen overnight, but I, I think that's that's a plausible story. The other story is we're going to have high in, high unemployment. This is what Paul Volcker did. Pushed uh, interest rates went over 20 percent um, and the unemployment rate hit almost 11 percent. It was a really awful time. How does that lower inflation? You force workers to take pay cuts. And one of the things that's just infuriating to me, I watch I'm watching CNN more than I ever would because of the war. And you get their pieces on inflation and they have these couples that are moderate income working in restaurants or whatever. Well, one thing, people working in restaurants have gotten large pay increases for the most part, but we'll ignore that for a moment. They're saying, oh, how hard it is to pay for gas and milk. And I'm sure for many cases, that's absolutely true. But you go, okay, so your remedy for dealing with this is we're going to jack interest rates through the roof. We're going to throw millions of people out of work, quite likely people like the ones they're interviewing. And then we'll ask them about how it is to pay for gas and milk and other items. It's it really is close to nuts. Um, again, inflation's a real problem, no denying that. But the idea that somehow, oh, we're just going to have the Fed raise rates, then we're all going to be happy. No, the people you're talking to are the ones who are going to be hit hardest in that story. So on the other issue then of the price of gas, you write that if there is a president to blame for high oil prices, it would be Donald Trump. 
he actually boasted about arranging for OPEC to reduce its production of oil during the pandemic. So I somehow missed that, Dean. Tell me more about this, because it's mind-boggling. Yeah, well, this actually isn't secret. I mean, he literally did both. We all know Trump. He goes, well, if not for me. And, you know, he said how, oh, I got the OPEC countries to agree to cut production. And they did cut production. How much he was instrumental, I have no idea. I'm just saying he boasted about it. So they did cut production during the pandemic. Maybe that was a good thing. You could argue that. I mean, we, you know, I'm not going to argue the case now. But, you know, that was that was what they did. And they haven't raised back their production to the pre-pandemic level. So then you go, how is this Joe Biden's fault? But Trump was the one who got them to reduce production. Uh, why is this now on Joe Biden's table? Like, oh, my God, look at this. You caused the price of oil to soar. No, it was, it was Donald Trump who got them to reduce production. So it really is close to nuts here that we're blaming Biden for the high price of gas. But why did he do it? And what was the point? Oh, the logic was that we had a huge fall off in demand. You know, we shut down much of our economy, same thing in Europe and uh, much of the rest of the world. So there was a huge fall off in demand and he wanted to stabilize prices. So I'm saying it wasn't entirely a ridiculous thing to do. But the problem was there was no clause, no provision, whatever you want to say. There was no way to ensure that they would raise production again once world economy got back on track, which it did very rapidly, particularly in the United States, which is a great thing. But they didn't increase their production back to where it was, which is the biggest single factor as to why oil prices have risen so much. Well, there's no mystery that Mohammed bin Salman, the Saudi crown prince, wants Trump back. He just loaned $2 billion to the son-in-law, Jared, who, against the advice of his own uh, sovereign wealth fund, and um, his attitude to Biden not taking his phone calls is pretty clear. And he's also now talking to the Chinese and the Russians about selling oil in, in yen and getting away from the dollar, which is another blow. So how much is this a political ploy? I mean, in other words, you it, know... It may well be a political ploy. I'll, I'll just say, you know, people have made too much of the currency that countries sell oil in because it's just, it, it's really just not that big a deal. I mean, if it makes them feel better, go ahead and sell it in yen or yuan or, you know, whatever you want. It really doesn't make a big difference. Um, so people have attached much to it. It's symbolic. You know, it's like, oh, we're not going to, we don't want your dollars. We're going to take the Chinese currency or whatever it might be. But it really has very, very little impact. But it's it may well be the case. I, I'm not saying one way or the other because I'm not in a position to know, but it may well be the case that they're sitting there in Saudi Arabia and the Emirates have generally follow Saudi's lead saying, oh, you know, we're going to try and screw Biden and bring back our friend Donald Trump because, you know, he'll give us everything he, we want, which more or less seems to have been the case. Um, so that that's an, an entirely plausible story. Whether that explains what's going on, I don't know. So your article on inflation also talks about the comparisons with the 1970s, which we were talking about Volcker. There was a slowdown in the 1970s in productivity growth, but there hasn't been a slowdown right in this current situation because, you know, there have been some comparisons made to Jimmy Carter's demise because of inflation and Joe Biden's demise. And, you know, if you're conspiratorial, you think to yourself, well, you know, do they get rid of American presidents who have the temerity to 
uh, want to reform things, uh, they don't last long. And that's there's certainly no question that Joe Biden came in as a reformer. Yeah, well, I don't like to be conspiratorial, but obviously he doesn't have friends in some places that say Donald Trump would, Saudi Arabia just being the most obvious example. But in terms of uh, the Fed policy, that that's a real concern. And the issue about productivity growth is a very important one that hasn't gotten the attention it deserves. So we went into the 70s with a quarter century of very rapid productivity growth, about 2.5% a year from the late 40s till, till the early 70s. And then suddenly it falls to 1%. So workers had been seeing wage growth roughly in step with productivity growth. Suddenly it's not possible. You can't get 2.5% wage growth year after year if productivity grows only 1%. So you had sort of this serious inflationary pressure in the economy simply coming from the fact that workers were trying to get wage increases, real wage increases, that were no longer possible given the where the where the economy was, where productivity was. The opposite has happened here. We had a decade of very slow productivity growth from 210, not quite a decade, 210 to 218. And then we suddenly saw a pickup so that we went from less than 1% a year annual productivity growth to 2.3% a year in the last three years. Now, I have no idea if that will continue, but at least to, to this point, we've seen a, a very strong uptick in productivity growth, which is very anti-inflationary. That means workers could get real wage gains of you know 2% a year without squeezing profits, which we could have some reduction in the profit share because we had a big increase in the pandemic. Um, but what this means is that we shouldn't see the sort of wage price spiral that we saw in the 70s. So this is the story that a lot of people, Larry Summers, former Treasury Secretary, most prominently has been saying, but many others were back in the 70s wage price spiral there's some very, very big differences. And I think it's just wrong to say we're seeing that now. Maybe we will down the road, but we clearly aren't seeing that now. Well, just in closing, there's a very telling graph that productivity and household income have run parallel all the way through to the 70s and then beginning the 80s. They started to diverge with all of the rewards from productivity going to management or capital and not to labor. And is that trends still uh, happening where the the graph is sort of divided with capital yeah, getting all the benefits and labor first off it wasn't all the capital it went largely to higher paid workers so these were management personnel professionals doctors lawyers other highly paid workers people in the tech sector so those people were seeing real wage gains but the median worker say someone worked as a retail clerk worked in a factory those workers were not seeing wage gains so what we had was we had in the, the period from the late 40s to the early 70s, we had both strong productivity growth and equally shared gains. Then we get to the 80s where we see modest productivity growth and very little by way of gains to those at the middle and bottom. And that has continued to be the pattern through most of the last four decades. The exceptions were the late 90s when we had very low unemployment. And then the years just prior to the pandemic from from uh, 2015 to 2020, when we also had low unemployment. So to my view, the key, now we could talk about many other things, more unionization, fantastic. You know, we could talk about other policies that will promote higher wages for your typical worker. But the one thing that we can say for sure, and we've actually seen is when we've gotten the unemployment rate down to low levels, workers, typical workers have been able to get their share of the gains from productivity. Well, Dean Baker, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thanks a lot for having me on. 
And again, I've been speaking with Dean Baker, who's a senior economist and co-founder of the Center for Economic and Policy Research, a progressive economic think tank based in Washington, D.C. And he's also writes the popular economics blog, Beat the Press, where his latest articles are Two Routes to Low Inflation and President Biden and the Price of Gas. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters. I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon, and this program is available for this has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. And to help us sustain this program into the future and assure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org donate or publictruthmedia.org, where you will find our nonprofit Public Truth Media Foundation, where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you missed any of today's program and would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we'll include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, and we also encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family and colleagues. And I'll be back again on Sunday with another background briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305.